Yes, great. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Is that better? A little better? Let's uh, pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for um, just another chance to gather and uh, dialogue and um, consider more and more of what it means to uh, be in your world, um, to consider more about who you are and how you've organized your world and what it looks like to be um, faithful in our uh, following of you in the church, but also in the world. And so I pray you'd give us wisdom and love and understanding um, and equip us, Lord, to uh, live as citizens of heaven while also being citizens of our country, of our state, and of our city. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you saw, you can uh, scan this QR code, leave it up there for about five more seconds. You can access today's slides. There will be quite a bit of content on the slides, so it could be helpful for you to have access to the slides on your device uh, in case I'm going too fast. All right. So, our class is Dual Citizens, A Pilgrim's Approach to Politics. And that's right, you heard me correctly. We are talking about politics, folks. How are we feeling? How are we feeling? Are we excited? Are we a little intrigued? Maybe a little nervous? Is he going to say what I hope he's going to say? Is he going to say something that maybe I don't want him to say? Uh, I'm, I'm both excited and I'm nervous. Yeah. I think this is actually going to be more challenging than talking about sex. So that was a good, um, that was a good kind of precursor or buildup. Because I feel like there's more agreement in, our, you know, in a typical church, or at least in a church like ours, on some of those topics. But this is, there's probably not near as much agreement amongst us on some you know, political matters. But, you know... Maybe I'll offend everyone, and deacons, I'll solve our parking issues just with one Sunday school class. Who knows? Uh, big picture goals for this class. Uh, my aim is to show you exactly who the Bible says you should vote for and what type of, what party to align with. No, that's, that's not my aim at all. Um, we are definitely going to be kind of doing a much more forest than trees approach, much more big picture approach. Kind of more like, what is our attitude towards government and politics? So one of my goals is that we would hopefully help us articulate from the Bible the value of politics and government and the value of political engagement. Um, I also hope to, to equip us to recognize unhealthy Christian approaches to politics and how to avoid them. And finally, how to develop strategies to love people with different politics. So my aim, thus, is not so much about who you vote for, but who you are as you vote. That's, that's more of what I'm hoping to get at. Um, not so much about who you vote for, but who you are as you vote. Another way to put it maybe is it's not so much what you vote for that I'm going to be talking about with us, but how you vote. What, what is your heart disposition as you vote? Um, 
I am missing a page. There it is. All right, so before we start, I have a little exercise for us. So repeat after me. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Awesome. Hopefully that can help prepare our hearts to discuss politics. All right, so why is it so hard to talk about politics? There's a lot of things you could say of why it is so hard, um, especially even for Christians, to talk about politics. Other than the fact that we're sinners, that's the obvious answer, um, but what does that actually look like um, in our lives right now? So I think one is that it can get very personal when you talk about politics. You know, if you disagree on a candidate or you disagree on an an issue with especially another believer, sometimes you can feel like from someone else that your, your very commitment to Christ and the gospel is being questioned by them. Um, Or, you know, so, so it can get very personal, um, based on who you voted for or where you fall on a particular issue. Why is it so hard? I think trust is, makes it hard. We, we don't know who to trust. Uh, we don't know what, how to really trust whether something is fact or not. Um, there's no voice or institution, it seems like, anymore that everyone trusts. And so we're getting different information. And so it can be very hard to have you know, very basic dialogue if, if there's not even agreement on the facts. Uh, social media, I think that's made it harder to talk about politics. Um, you know, just think of the algorithms, for, the, for one. Um, they know we want to read things that we agree with and things that are dramatic. You think of the, the idea of clickbait. So the algorithms can even feed division by just putting us further in our echo chamber. Um, One person said, sites like Twitter, which can be stressful on a good day, become overwhelming with a constant flood of new things to be upset or dismayed about. And uh, social media is full of sound bites. It's full of memes, just like quick ways to kind of make you more against the other side. But then thoughtlessness. Social media, I think, can breed thoughtlessness. Uh, One person said, a growing body of research highlights the strain on our ability to read, understand, process, and take action on the flood of news with which we're confronted. That's not just social media, but definitely part of it. The more stories there are to read, the harder it is to process any of them. Um, I think to have a healthy political society, there needs to be thoughtfulness and a willingness to understand a person's perspective that I think social media doesn't help with always, it can. 
Um, and so it just kind of also it, it enables unhealthy dialogue about politics. It's not probably the best place to, to go back and forth in disagreement about it. Polarization. Uh, one pastor said, it's not just that our two major political parties are more distinct than they used to be. People are more separated than they used to be. We are sorting ourselves out digitally and geographically into like-minded hives. Humans are tribal creatures with the decline of religion and family and the rise of a national or global culture at the expense of localism. We have gravitated towards ideological clans. And like clan loyalty of old, we can always find ways to defend our clan while defining ourselves based on being the opposite of the other clan. So that's made it harder. Politicization, one book I re I'm reading um, called Politics for Everyone. They talk about the difference between engaging a topic politically versus politicizing it. What's the difference between engaging a topic politically or versus politicizing it? To politicize is to transform it into a wedge, dividing us from them, turning the whole of life into a means of dividing and destroying. One person said the attempt to politicize everything is the destruction of politics. When everything is seen as relevant to politics, then politics has indeed become totalitarian. Everything has become politicized with commercials, corporations, education, entertainment, and sports itself deciding that everything should be about everything. Staying in your lane is seen as not doing your part in the great struggle of our age. So I think that has also made it hard. And then finally, Christians disagree on a biblical political philosophy. Um, even within smaller camps, like a Reformed camp, which our church and our denomination is, there's still a whole spectrum of thought on politics. There's, um, there's varying cultural instincts, even in our camp. The classic five, you know, kind of cultural instincts of Christians are Christ against culture, so kind of a withdrawal, Christ above culture, Christ of culture, kind of assimilating. Christ and culture and paradox, and Christ the transformer of culture. So kind of to summarize it in two ways, the two extremes maybe are, of the instincts of Christians are maybe one extreme is sort of this triumphalistic transformationalism. Two big words I know, but just this sense of this real heightened expectation of, of Christ really transforming all of culture, especially through politics. And then the other extreme would be just withdrawal, just with uh, disregarding it all and retreating. Okay, And I'm today going to be kind of more speaking to that instinct in some, that temptation in some, to just kind of clean their hands of it all together and not care about society or politics at all. So... Unfortunately, I can't promise to solve all these problems, but hopefully I can give us somewhat of a way forward. And if you came in late, um, you can access these slides through your device. I have a QR code on both sides of the sound booth, just uh, taped there on the side of the sound booth. So if you wanted to, to try and access those at some point, you can do that. All right, so my plan for the next three classes 
is really to, to go over two um, kind of overarching principles for a pilgrim approach to politics, and then the third class will be more practical, sort of six-ish practices um, of a pilgrim approach to politics. So it's more of a flyover. I hope to, in a couple years, uh, leading up to the 2024, kind of bigger election even, um, hopefully go more in-depth and maybe do a seven to eight class series leading up to the 2024 election, but I figured in light of the midterms this year, it could be helpful as a church to go over some of these principles and practices together. All right, so principle one today. First principle is don't underestimate the importance of politics. This, uh, I'm getting my, my two principles. I am um, drawing my inspiration for these from a pastor who from a sermon he gave, a pastor in D.C., a sermon he gave right before the 2016 election um, that was very, very good and helpful. So don't underestimate the importance of politics. According to a recent Pew Research Center survey, trust in government in America is at one of the lowest levels in a half century. Surprise, surprise. Almost three-quarters of Americans believe elected officials put their own interests ahead of the country's interests. Much of the public has utter contempt for the political class. And so as cynicism grows, it's important for us to pause and remember that governments are actually a good thing. In fact, they are God's idea. Paul had to remind the Romans of this in Romans 13. So it's up on the screen, but you can also turn there if you want. Romans 13, I want to discuss this passage mainly together, um, and next week we'll talk about Revelation 13. So it's the two chapter 13s in the Bible that you need to hold in tension, Romans 13 and Revelation 13. Um, but today is Romans 13. So kind of abruptly, um, towards the end of Romans, Paul all of a sudden starts talking about government. If you remember chapter 12, is this beautiful chapter about love, and he's been kind of unpacking uh, what it looks like to, to love God and others. And then it just kind of jumps into this section on government. And then it keeps going afterwards, talking again about love. And so it seems a little jarring, a little out of place. Like, okay, Paul, how does this fit into your overall flow? Where is this discussion coming from? But if you look at the progression of chapter 12 and how he's talking about love, he first talks about are, you know, he's saying you've got to sacrifice, um, be, live as living sacrifices, and then he kind of says in relation to God, but then the middle of chapter 12 is about our relationship with other people, and the end of chapter 12, it's our relationship to those outside of the Christian community and also to enemies, and so wouldn't it make sense then to speak about the, the Christian's relationship to civil authorities to kind of keep that progression going? Um, and so chapter 13 sort of flows with that progression. But also, if you remember at the beginning of chapter 12, he had called the Christians, I think in verse 1 or 2, to not be um, conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Some Christians, I think Paul is anticipating, might take their nonconformity with the world to the extreme. Especially think about the Jewish Christians uh, at the Church of Rome. 
they might be tempted to do that. So Paul seems, at least in part, to be anticipating Christians who may take their call to be separate, separate from the world too far and not care about government anymore, which is a temptation we can face as well. So to this, Paul is saying, no, there is an important place for government and we should care about it. So let's look at Romans 13 together. Can someone read um, Romans 13, verses 1 through 7? Yeah, Tim. Yep. All right, so here's what I see to be Paul's kind of line of thought, just a quick sort of outline, then I'm going to actually walk through this outline a little more slowly. But there's a command, kind of two big things. Are there's a command, and then there's reasons for the command, and then there's further implications that he gives. All right, so let's sort of walk through that outline with the text alongside of it. So the, the first kind of major heading is this general command, Submit to governing authorities. So a few things about this general command. I want you to notice that he uses the word submit there and not obey. Very similar concepts, but slightly different in important ways. To submit is to recognize one's subordinate place in a hierarchy. Acknowledging sort of this general rule that some have authority over us in some areas of our life. The Bible, if you think about it, has many of these hierarchies um, for life in this world. But such a posture will usually demand that we obey them too. But sometimes disobedience is called for if we are being asked to disobey God. All right, so pretty straightforward. Difference between submitting and obeying, they're very similar, but there's an important difference. And of course, given that we are in a democracy and have some say in the types of authorities we will be submitting to, this should make us all the more interested in politics. All right, and then he says governing authorities. What does he mean? He includes the word governing to show its societal authorities and not church-related authorities that are in view for us. And then today... What do we think of? We think of sort of, I guess, the three levels of government is sort of how we would apply this today. National, state, and city government would be the governing authorities that Paul, all of those kind of fall under this category. Now, this would have been a hard command for Paul's readers in Rome to hear. The governing authorities at that time were not very stand-up people, it was Nero was the emperor at the time Paul wrote this. You probably know many stories about Nero. He actually got a lot worse um, later 
after Romans was written. Um, some jokingly say, I wonder if Paul would have actually written this, because um, he, he wasn't in prison yet when he wrote these words. Would he really have written these from prison, like he wrote other stuff? And of course the answer is yes, he would. Um, so Nero was, was in charge. So Paul is going to need to give some good reasons for this hard command, uh, especially for the believers in that day. So what is his first reason for this? There is no authority except by God, and the existing authorities have been appointed by God. All right? So the first reason is that uh, God put these people um, over you. And this is sort of a historical pattern. I mean, think of all throughout the Bible. Isaiah 45, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, who was um, you know, emperor or king of Persia, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings. Jeremiah 25, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants. Daniel 2, Daniel says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. And of course, Jesus, in his conversation with Pilate, Pilate said to Jesus, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And then Peter, uh, writing seven or eight years after Paul wrote Romans, um, so things had kind of ramped up a little bit more um, in terms of persecution, repeats Paul's sentiment. Be subject to the, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, sent by God, to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. So from a human perspective, rulers come to power through force or heredity or popular choice today, but the believer recognizes something bigger is going on behind every process is the hand of God, all right? So it says those who resist, receive, will incur judgment. You know, there's this call, do not resist, you will incur judgment. Um, the implication is that to resist governing authorities is to resist God himself. And there's qualifications, and we've kind of said them, and we'll say them again. All right, second reason that they are to submit to the governing authorities is that the governing authorities are God's servants to reward good and punish evil. So not only has God appointed rulers, but he has entrusted them an important role of maintaining order in society. So by punishing wrong and promoting good, secular rulers are carrying out God's purposes in the world. You see the repeated phrase, you'll see it multiple times here, they are God's servants. Deacons, that's the same word as deacon. It's diac diaconos. They're God's deacons. It's, that word has got a wide use in Greek society, specific use in the church, but it, they are God's servants. So think about it. Earlier in Romans 12, there's that really helpful and important passage where God calls believers to not take vengeance on others. Don't take vengeance. Don't carry out vengeance on someone you're angry at. Why? Because leave vengeance to God. 
Now Paul shows that one of the ways that God carries out his vengeance on evil and wrong is through the state. Um, It is they, verse 4, who are to bear the sword, indicating the right of government to punish those who violate its lawful commands. So the state is allowed to do something that Christians are not allowed, are, are commanded not to do, take vengeance. And it says, the state, uh, this is your servant for your good. That is probably the phrase that has the most disagreement for Christians today on how that applies to what government should do and should not do. It's probably left intentionally vague, um, and it's been applied in multiple ways, some good, some not so good, um, but that's sort of one of the intentions of government that, that Paul lays out. And then in verse 5, Paul sums up his argument. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So avoiding, being in subjection to avoid God's wrath summarizes verses 3 and 4. And the way that Paul structures his sentence in verse 5, he's giving a clue that that is the lesser of the two reasons. The more important reason is for the sake of conscience. Obey the governing authorities for the sake of conscience. Not only should we submit to government for practical reasons, avoiding punishment, but more importantly, because of conscience. What is he saying there? He's saying because of your knowledge of God's will, because of your relationship with God, you should long to do the will of God. And God has put government in place to justly order society, and your longing to follow God should manifest itself in submitting to the government he has put in place insofar as it doesn't conflict with your following God. All right? So then Paul kind of gives further implications, verses 6 and 7. Because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, there it is again, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So, In verse 6, Paul is commending them that they are already paying their taxes. And he's reminding them that they're doing this ultimately as an expression of their submission to government. And then he says the authorities are ministers of God. It's the third time he's used this. Clearly he's trying to show us that there is a sacred nature to the secular ruler's service. Payment of taxes becomes a responsibility that the Christians owe to God himself. I was um, really drawn and inspired by a, uh, a section of one of the sermons on Romans 13 that I had studied was uh, Dr. Robert Rayburn, who's a PTA pastor out in uh, Tacoma, Washington. Uh, he's now retired, but he said this about this section on taxes. So I'll quote at length. Consider taxation in the first century. And consider that Jesus himself, the king of kings, paid his taxes as demanded by the Roman government. Talk about taxation without representation. Taxes collected in Judea and Galilee from Jews were used to pay for the army that occupied Palestine, oppressed the Jews, and made their national humiliation public every day. Those same taxes went to fund the construction and support of temples to Roman gods, such as the immense temple to Diana, 
in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the world. There was very little that a Jew's taxes or a Christian's taxes in that first century were spent on that a Jew or Christian would approve. And yet, they paid their taxes as the Lord Jesus and as here the Apostle Paul told them to do. The fact that there are some things governments order Christians to do that they cannot do does not mean that almost all the time, almost all the time, Christians are to do what they are told to do and do that as an act of loyalty to the Lord their God. And verse 7 sort of sums it up. Pay to who is owed to them, taxes to who are owed, revenue, respect, honor. So it it seems to have a broad-reaching application, that verse, but um, Paul is probably still thinking here, apply this specifically to the societal officials and rulers. And by using the language of debt, saying pay to what is owed to them, Paul suggests that service, the service that the government gives places us under obligation to the various authorities. All right, so some concluding thoughts on this passage. First thing I want to say in summary or in conclusion is don't overcomplicate Romans 13. Sometimes we can overcomplicate it um, to, to want to maybe get around some of the things it's saying. I love what Douglas Moo said. It is, all, it is only a slight exaggeration to say that the history of interpretation of Romans 13 is the history of attempts to avoid what seems to be its plain meaning. So don't obscure its meaning in a flood of qualifications. Um, the, the, the plain meaning is for us to be upstanding citizens. All right, the Westminster Confession seems to agree with this plain interpretation of Romans 13. The first section of it has a whole chapter on the civil magistrate. And the first uh, paragraph is God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him over the people for his own glory and the public good. And to this end, hath armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. All right, but at the same time, don't overemphasize Romans 13. Paul is speaking of government as it ought to be here. He's assuming the best of government. He's assuming that they're carrying out their role in the way God designed it. But of course, it's not always like that. And wherever it commands us against God, we obey God. And this isn't the only thing the Bible says about government and our relationship to it. Romans 13 is not the only passage. We need to keep it in tension with other things the Bible says, and hopefully we'll do that in this class together. And this passage is more, the focus is more on our duty to government than on, you know, a strict theology of government, though there are implications we can derive from that. One person said, however concerned the Bible may be regarding the rights of other people, of of the rights of humanity, it's chiefly concerned with the duties. So it, it the Bible is concerned about the rights of Christians, but it's chiefly concerned with the duties of Christians. The Bible cares about our rights, but more about our righteousness. So there's, there's another tension there. And this passage is an obvious example of that. One more passage I want to put before us is the first Great Commission. Uh, the second, of course, the, the, the big, the most important, the main one is Christ at the end of Matthew. But there is this First Great Commission in Genesis 1. 
Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And two verses later, And God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, so this call to have dominion uh, over the earth. Dominion, what does that mean? It's not greedily making this world work just how we want it, selfishly. Um, Dominion means stewardship. It's a steward-like care. So our call to stewardship and care of God's world, it's it's a call to, to care for God's world, and when it includes... In verse 26, over all the earth, there is a sense in which we can see caring about the just ordering of society through politics is one of many uh, exercises of our dominion. All right? So J.I. Packer, a New Testament uh, theologian, I'm going to quote him at length, sort of summarizing everything I've just said. In the New Testament, civic obligation is emphatically commanded alongside, indeed as part of, the obligation to serve God. When Jesus answered the question about tax paying with the words, render to Caesar the things that are his and God's God's, this was not a clever evasion of the issue, but a clear acknowledgement that rendering what is due to the existing political regime is part of the Christian calling. When Peter in one breath says, fear God, honor the emperor, he spotlights the same truth. As Paul does, when in the course of his overview of the life of gratitude for grace, that is true Christianity, he's talking about the end of Romans, or the the last several chapters, Paul is kind of summarizing what it looks like to respond to grace. He teaches the Roman Christians to be subject to the authorities and tells them for the sake of conscience they should pay their taxes. Um, J.F. Packer continues, Paul speaks of each state official as God's servant for your good. Note that it is pagan Roman officials from the emperor down that he has in view. And he further explains that God instituted the state as such to maintain law, order, justice, and good. Good here evidently embraces protection and well-being and is thus not far removed from the opportunity to pursue happiness, which the American Constitution enshrines. Hence, Although Christians are not to think of themselves as ever at home in this world, as pilgrims, but rather sojourning aliens, travelers passing through a foreign land to the place where their treasures are stored awaiting their arrival, at the same time, Scripture forbids them to be indifferent to the benefits that flow from good government. Nor, therefore, should they hesitate to play their part in maximizing these benefits for others as well as for themselves. The upholding of stable government by a law-abiding life and helping it to fulfill its role by personal participation where this is possible is as fitting for us today as it was for Joseph, Moses, David, Solomon, Nehemiah, Mordecai, and Daniel to look no further. We must see it as service to God and neighbor. As one Christian member of the European Parliament said, To try to improve society is not worldliness, but love. To wash your hands of society is not love, but worldliness. All right. Packer continues later in this article that I'm quoting from. 
The New Testament does not speak about active political participation for the very good reason that this was not an option for first century believers. The Roman Empire was not a democracy and many of, if not most Christians, were not Roman citizens even. They were a small minority from the lower end of the spectrum and were viewed as eccentric deviants from the older eccentricity of Judaism. They had no political influence, nor any prospect of gaining any. So the only politically significant things they could do were pay their taxes, pray for their rulers, and keep the peace. Present-day representative democracy, however, opens the door to a wider range of political possibilities and thereby requires of us more in the way of responsibility, a responsible commitment than the circumstances required in New Testament times. And that commitment may be summarized, and so you see it's one, or it says one, two, three. This is, this is like three of like seven he gives. I'm probably going to talk about some of his other things in the third class, but I'll just give a few for now. That commitment to being a responsible citizen may be summarized. One, he says, all should keep informed. Otherwise, we cannot judge well about issues, vote well for candidates, or pray well for rulers. Political ignorance is never a Christian virtue. So one of his applications in light of importance, you know, valuing the, the importance of government is just to stay informed. Obviously, there's so many ways to do that, and so my encouragement would be to just be thoughtful about how you're staying informed. Um, maybe try to have a resource that's coming from an angle that you agree with more, and maybe try to keep yourself at least listening to a resource or two that maybe comes from a different perspective that you probably don't agree on, but at least um, gives you other perspective. Uh, also, he says, all should vote in elections and referendums whenever expressions of public opinion are called for. We should be led in our voting by issues rather than personalities and not by single issues viewed in isolation, but by our vision of total community welfare. This is one way, real if small, in which we may exert influence as the world's salt and light. Some should seek political influence by debating, writing, and working within political party with which they are most nearest agreement. Clergy should not ordinarily do this since it will be a barrier to the acceptance of their ministry by people who disagree with their politics. It is, however, very desirable that lay people with political interests should be encouraged to see the gaining and exerting of political influence as a field of Christian service alongside the fields of church life, worship, and witness. All right, so in conclusion, don't underestimate the importance of politics. As we enter another election season, don't give in to cynicism. Don't underestimate the importance don't think of governments as just a necessary evil. God has established them, as we have seen, as a positive good. They deal with the practical and the ethical. They deal with the necessary and the noble. There's roads to be built. There's children to be educated. There's parks, national parks to be maintained, and poverty to be cared for. There's wars to be won and medicines to be distributed. And creative policy can make our, straight, our streets safer our schools better, it can reduce violence and drug use and encourage marriage and adoption. It can serve the common good at a homeless shelter here in Raleigh or an AIDS clinic in South Africa. 
Politics can be part of God's plan to renew the world. He has designed it to be. And where politics is done poorly, as one person said, the answer is to do it better. One writer said, the fighting of raging fires requires a fire extinguisher, not withdrawal. No believer should dismiss or devalue the political enterprise. God has ordained it for the welfare of humanity, and we should engage it to make it better than it would be without us. So don't underestimate the importance of politics. Take a wild guess at what the next principle is. It's don't overestimate the importance of politics, and we will talk about that next week. Uh, we'll be talking about our you know, ways that we can go the other extreme and, and overemphasize it. And um, also, I'm hoping as well to talk a little bit about the idea, the, the Christian doctrine of the two kingdoms. Some of you um, may perk up when I use that phrase and think about some recent um, use of that language, two kingdoms. Most of you probably have never heard that before. I'm more talking about the classical definition of two kingdoms from Calvin and Luther, um, not the more recent um, uh, kind of neo-two kingdoms thought that um, has become prevalent in some circles, but uh, there's a more classic, and it, it really gives a good framework of how Christians should think about uh, government um, in light of kind of next week's principle. So I'm excited to talk about that as well. But yeah, don't underestimate the importance of politics. Any, we have a few minutes. Any questions or comments? Yeah, Mike. Just, so you're saying, was it, was it, were they disobeying God by rebelling against the king? Do you think that what I've said, um, like what I've said here, um, like is that what you're hearing me say? No, Through what? Sure. Yes. I mean, that is a that is a <laughs> complicated issue. That I mean, it's a great question. That my my instinct would be say yes, it was justified. But I am not a historian. I am not very well versed on all the dynamics of everything that was going on. You could walk circles around me on knowing all the ins and outs of that. And so I, I really am going to punt on that. But I, my gut would say, yes, it was justified. But I, I'd have to get coffee with anyone in here who wants to talk about that more. Because I, yeah, I, I, I don't have a, you know, well thought out answer to that. So... I know it's been asked before. I know that's that's been a. I know people have asked that before, and I I, I don't have anything that comes immediately to mind as a helpful resource to explain a, a an answer to that. It's a good question, though. Yeah, Jeff.
there was the badge that played with political candidates. Hmm. Yeah, to, to be careful, absolutely. But also, exactly. Yeah, you don't want it to get to the point where you can't even, you feel bad even being involved, and, and that's not the point. But yeah, no, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. And I often wonder what it would have been like to be a believer under a roof like that. Mm-hmm. To have raised kids in the church yeah. and, and faith in that. And yet, he was doing his job and his pastor and he said, go out and take these people to God. Tell them about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think about your your Romans twelve example. It it goes on that you know we are not conformed but transformed by mm-hmm. by the renewing of the mind. Yeah. Right? Why? Because our minds are being renewed constantly. Yeah. And there's so much that we can be surrendered to. That God is in fact leading us and molding us and trying to to bring about His sovereign. Absolutely. Ivan, I think you had your hand up. Yeah, and he wrote this in 1985. This is a 1985 article, so my how things have changed in terms of being informed, what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. 
Kirk, I know you had your hand up too. Uh, all right. Hopefully next week we can get to it. Sorry. Father, uh, thank you for uh, this, this time to discuss these things. Just continue to give us wisdom and love um, and understanding uh, that we can be, most importantly, uh, followers of you and children of you, but also care about our world um, and know how best to live that out in the realm of political engagement. In Jesus' name, amen.